Yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, we going? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, hi, everyone who might be watching this. It's uh, Justin Theodra. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Connecticut in political science, subfields, political theory and international relations. I study from a Marxist lens, the historical sociology of Southeast Asia, focusing on Indonesia. And I think for the viewership of this journal, it's also appropriate to say, you know, not necessarily at all job talks you say this, but uh, very interested in Marxist theories of imperialism from Lenin to contemporary stuff, uh, Marxist political economy, and um, Chinese socialism, et cetera. So just to lay out sort of um, my initial interest, my regional interest about Indonesia, about Southeast Asia, just comes from my background. You know, I grew up in Hong Kong and Indonesia and uh, moved to the United States, saw the big gap, which is a really uh, not just material gap, but also, you know, the life horizons in a, in a multidimensional sense between people I knew back in Asia versus in the United States and later in England was just enormous. And this interest me, interested me very much. And I looked at it from an economic view, mainly because I was studying development econ. So to talk a little bit more about that, I mean, my first article was a monthly review article about the 1965 massacres in Indonesia. And uh, that was a very interesting and informative thing to write because I mean, the book about it gives you like a window into the whole literature on the topic. In 1965, there's a huge massacre. Um, you can see Joshua Oppenheimer's film about it of uh, Indonesian communists. The Indonesian Communist Party had been the biggest party outside the Eastern Bloc and rapidly rising really until 1965. And not to go into the details of, about the story, but too much, but the theoretical significance, analytical and political significance is it's a, it's, it's a paradigmatic case of a right wing, really fascistic uh, reaction and how swift devastating it can be, the tactics and so on and so forth. How it's overlain by race as well with anti-Chinese factor. The person I, I reviewed, uh, Robinson makes a claim about you know, the strategy, but also draw some of these broader theoretical points out if I can remember correctly. And um, so yeah, I've always been interested in Indonesia. I have all kinds of papers about it that have not been, been published, but always been interested in it, reading about it, mainly because when I talked to my dad, he grew up in that whole, uh, he grew, he lived everything that I, that I read. So it's pretty interesting to be able to talk to him about it and relate about it. Um, so yeah, that's my sort of interest on Indonesia. Do you want me to just keep going or? Well, yeah, I'd love to talk just to begin with kind of like the theoretical aspect of your 
review of the book. So kind of in reading it, I thought was what was most striking was like you pointing out what was kind of missing in, in the book, which was like an analysis of monopoly capital and its role that it played within mm. the, the massacre. So let's start yeah. from there kind of in like the broader literature about Indonesia with this particular mm. moment has achieved a lot of like more literature devoted to it and studying kind of the the um, gruesomeness of the of the massacre itself but not particularly a lot about what happened after of like how monopoly yeah. kind of ruled Indonesia and then we can tie that into uh, your approach theoretically hmm. great question you know th that is the that is the key point isn't it I mean um, there's a book behind me on that shelf somewhere it's called Robinson it's Robinson's book uh, and it's called Rise of Capital. And that is the that was like the only book that really looked <clears throat> at what the 65 massacres created. Recently, Hilmar uh, Farid, I believe his name is, <clears throat> uh, ex-cultural minister for Jokowi, the president of, the, of Indonesia right now, uh, put out an article and recent only so only recently, more Marxists theorizations of uh, 65 have been coming out. Farid characterizes it like primitive accumulation, which is a very good and creative use of that. People have debated him, debated him on it, but for the longest time, only Robinson really used historical materialism to analyze 1965. There are a lot of liberals who looked at it from an individual and elite-centered politics type view, personalization of the whole tragedy. And on the left liberal side, of course, a moralization tale, a more moral tale against totalitarianism, which is rather ironic, but there you go. So yeah, I, I think um, that's what I felt generally about development economics, that it was not getting to the nub of the problem, not really explaining, <clears throat> excuse me, why, um, not really explaining, you know, the problem of development as I saw it, you know, firsthand in Hong Kong, Indonesia. You very much feel when you live there, or when I lived there, that I felt that there was a hugely contradictory process go going on. That that was, you know, yeah. I remember as a kid, I I just remember thinking that it all had to do something to do with money. And of course, Marx goes into that very in great, great depth, you know, capital. And there is great theoretical depth and significance to that, which was not coming out in even the good books on Indonesia. And <clears throat> therefore, when I got my hands on some of Samir Amin's work, actually, it's a funny story because it was the centenary of the October Revolution when I first read his stuff, you know, so I was like, I couldn't be, be you know, bothered to read any Marxism before that because I had all kinds of prejudice. But I said, once in a lifetime, the centenary comes along, I might as well read some stuff. And it was his book that I read on it, October 1917. I read that and I greatly enjoyed it and find it, found it so much more penetrating and uh, sharp, you know, even polemically stylistic. I enjoyed the book. So I kept re reading a mean and got familiar, very familiar with the monthly review tradition. Uh, that was my mainstay for about two years. Uh, I was just re pretty much only reading Amin, and then later published an article about Amin, you know, summarizing Amin's life and work, a kind of intellectual biography type thing. 
which was my deal for a while, but that, that is how I really made the transition. And you, you do bring up the, that great point, you know, more broadly, that's what I hope to do in Indonesia studies and like regional studies of Southeast Asia. I mean, the, the new cold war and everything, the region is becoming very, very hot. So uh, I, you know, trying to get to the systemic roots of that whole region is, is sort of my thing now, yeah. Yeah, so I'd love to go more into that. And how have you found like Samir Amin as a useful <coughs> model to understand Indonesia's place in the world system? Uh, and also what, not necessarily shortcomings, but what have you found that needs more revision and more um, clarification in his work? Sure, so maybe I'll answer the second first actually, because. I just have on my mind, you know, that reminded me of my dissertation at SOAS, where I did my master's, and I explored some of this, you know, and I, I did get this, because I compared in that uh, piece, uh, Amin's thought and the thought of Raoul Prebish, and while Amin does go beyond Prebish by looking at relations of production, by looking at monopoly capital, and so on, and basically goes beyond empiricism, I feel like the world system school as a whole, I mean, it has been criticized, you know, it's a common criticism, circulations. Um, the defin definition of capital is based on production for the market to make a profit, which is, which is problematic, which is problematic. On the other hand, I think that what I found in my readings of the, of the literature, you know, you know, primary and secondary sources on world systems theory is it's, it had that great, you know, I'm, I'm writing a paper on Marxist theories of imperialism right now. So whereas the classic Marxists, Lenin, Luxembourg, et cetera, looked at the world almost as one giant capitalist mode of production, definitely not Luxembourg's case, but that was their starting premise, the capitalist mode of production and the inner tendencies of capital creates a very Eurocentric vision. And Amin and the dependency theorists, and even before then, Baron, with uh, the political economy of growth, uh, put the specificity of the periphery at the forefront. And from there, we get all kinds of things which have become so huge in the sort of way we understand things today. So clearly, you know, relevant things like uneven development, and uh, even more so, uneven combined development. So through my reading of Amin. I became very familiar, familiar with those classic arguments, you know, that the center super exploits the periphery, how the global labor arbitrage works, how that actually, you know, means that globalization is reinforcing the uh, uh, territorial logic of power or the significance of the nation state, you know, contra to these notions of uh, a global state or uh, a supranational empire like Hart and Negri talk about. So I became, it was good in a way because it helped me to put Indonesia in the context of the capitalist world system, which I find is, is a very useful thing. Um, but I think it's limited in that it conceives of those dynamics, you know, of this capitalist world system in a, in a theoretically uh, problematic way, circulationist way, focused on exchange rather than production. 
And I'd love also to talk more about how you applied this, I guess, you know, especially to Indonesia, <coughs> focusing on Indonesia, you know, mm -hmm. kind of refining the debates about Indonesia's place within, like, as you said, you know, before just limiting it to strictly like a peripheral status and not kind of analyzing it further. So I wonder how, like, to start just on a more specific note with Indonesia, like how your research kind of develop that further and then to talk more about going beyond the dependency theory model. Sure, sure. So uh, this is a great point. Really, um, the chief limit of dependency theory is that it makes the periphery lack agency and makes the periphery a kind of passive victim. This is what John Hobson, the new, new John Hobson, the, the grandson of the old one says. Uh, it's got a Euro fetishism to it that sort of makes the periphery seem, uh, actually not just seem, but actually does strip it of, of, of any agency because it's in that section of the uh, center periphery uh, so-called structure. So this is, this is problematic because you get instances in Indonesia's history where that doesn't seem to be the case. For example, right after the Indonesian revolution, you had uh, so-called uh, socialization of the economy uh, this was a move made by Suharto, which took the, uh, and, and in, in very rapid succession, you know, they, they, they went from liberal democracy and, and not even state capitalism, but, but almost laissez-faire market capitalism quickly shifted to a so-called guided democracy. So more statist uh, managed market economy and further drove that into socialization of the economy, which was the term for the movement of really almost building a socialist uh, system in Indonesia very, very rapidly. This does not seem like, you know, a social formation that's just responding to the West. In fact, it was leading world events. So, so uh, we can't be one-sided about this thing either. You know, the periphery doesn't make history in conditions of its own choosing, but we want to now that the dependency theorists have laid out the structural constraints, some of the constraints, we want to look at where we can get some wiggle room in that, where, where the uh, um, causal determinacy is not so great and where agency is really a lot more uh, prevalent, I think, that the perspective of uneven combined development in particular, uh, it's a pretty, uh, substantial Marxist theory of international relations is a good way of doing this. And that's mainly the theoretical perspective I've uh, been trying to work with. And, you know, I'm not, uh, not dogmatically either, you know, I have my own uh, problems with that perspective, but uneven combined development is more fluid. It's more dynamic. It, um, uh, it basically, you know, Core periphery and dependency theory highlights the unevenness bit pretty well, and how that sort of self reinforces through the logics of capital. But there's another, there's, you know, of course, the other side of the dialectic, which is what do people in the periphery do when they find themselves up against this unevenness? They don't just sit there and take it at all. In fact, it stimulates inside the periphery a combination, combination of modes of production in particular, trying to amalgamate the 
advanced, meaning more productive uh, relations of production and techniques, and even cultural factors, you know, from the uh, global north or the advanced countries, whatever, whatever you want to call it, finding ways of amalgamating with, in Indonesia, a great case in point is the utilization of Islamic merchants. So these sort of uh, religious circles of finance were a domestic sort of substitute for, for the capitalist class that Indonesia lacked, which Suharto and other social forces, you know, Sukarno and other social forces, and later Suharto too, a little bit. Suharto was more using the family and the oligarchy as a substitute, but you see finding these sort of domestic materials with which to amalgamate the uh, advanced productive forces um, in response to global unevenness. This to me seems like the other side of that dialectic and a very important side to look at given what's happening now with the rise of Asia. And it's very uh, hot, you know, sort of interaction with the declining West. That, that's how I'd say it would uh, apply to Indonesia in particular. Yeah, and I'm very curious about, so I think combined development has kind of come back as a theoretical mode um, with a lot of conversations about multi and plurality. A lot of people are kind of uh, thinking about that again, um, particularly for the global South. You talked in, in the article, um, in the article on reviewing uh, the killing season, uh, towards the end, you talk about multinationals and you mentioned uh, Intan Suandi's book, um, Value Chains, and talked about how uh, contemporary multinationals being invested in super exploitation of countries in the global south. So I'm wondering if you can talk more about, about this idea um, and the ideas that Suwandi puts forward in, in value chains as well on particularly Indonesia and like how it's a great example uh, and exemplifies like the modern condition of, of a global South nation in this super exploitation. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, this is, was for a long time, one of my favorite topics. And I think it's a great, so the idea is basically global labor arbitrage, right? The notion is that capital seeks to accumulate limitlessly and that means eventually going beyond the limits posed by national boundaries. You can make a lot more money, um, a lot more profit and a lot more surplus value if you offshore and you organize production globally. Now that has immense political sort of implications. Uh, the first thing is, is since it's capitalist multinationals, profit-driven uh, firms at the head of this process, of offshoring, of globalization, of construction, of value chains, as it were, um, a key, you know, condition of this technical progress to go ahead is that uh, the wages, and um, in particular the unit labor costs, you know, so that's what Suwandi highlights. It's wages relative to productivity in the south, in the exploited region of the world, have to be restrained. There has to be a certain income deflation, as Pat Knight puts it, but that's a different kind of concept. We're talking about wage restraint of many different kinds, of various kinds, uh, in countries of the South. So this, this explains the, why countries like Indonesia, you know, rather than saying they're still poor today because 
they are specializing in the wrong products or they have the wrong cultural practices, the wrong demographic makeup and all this kind of naturalistic uh, reified causalities. What's really happening is that they're systemically uh, being impoverished, underdeveloped. Uh, they need to, the workers in the global south, need to, the producers there need to be uh, as poor as possible to make the, uh, uh, to make it profitable to offshore production there. And of course, this has ramifications for the north too. You have uh, the, the uh, uh, loss of manufacturing jobs and growth instability as well. So it's a dialectical process. And uh, you, Suwandi is also Indonesian, and she she looks at like uh, uh, manufacturing firms and does several interviews with people in Indonesia who, is very interestingly, are are quite aware of of this this very complex economic phenomenon, even without a kind of formal education in economics. The uh, the salience of that to their lives is so it's it's huge, it's massive. Um, because they're working with multinationals. I mean, these uh, executives, you know, of, of which it's like, that's my family, uh, you know, pretty much uh, executives, business people in Indonesia generally um, who have to work with the multinationals every day and know the prices uh, that these multinationals are paying for the product for the labor, for the raw materials, and it's all uh, ridiculously low com compared to the selling price. Now, this shouldn't be confused with the earlier notion of unequal exchange. You know, it's not like the global South is being uh, uh, is trading on unequal terms, and that's it. This is a kind of older, ancient form of, of exploitation, as you, as you know. What we're talking about now is is the structuring of production itself, not just the terms of exchange, but the way things are produced uh, is being controlled uh, by the multinationals to depress these unit labor costs, which has, which has implications for like every aspect of social development. You know? It's like Marx said with, with capital and the capitalist mode of production, it like touches all spheres of social life. You know, the same goes on a world scale. This, this imperative to accumulate competitively and to therefore lower the, the unit labor costs has implications for spatial organization of production. For instance, you have, um, my dad was building these uh, temporary housing units and sort of housing for the workers in the timber uh, gathering regions of Indonesia and stuff like that. And he saw how they lived and how they were separated and lived a nomadic life almost because they had to separate from the village to, to, to go and work for several months in a row, totally changes the dynamic of family life. Relations between the sexes is being transformed as more women are uh, taken in as a low wage exploitable labor force, you know, precisely again, to keep the unit labor costs low. And um, on the one hand, this leads to you know, Suwandi really emphasizes that uh, this process of offshoring, even though it is coterminous with the East Asian miracle, like these countries and peoples were getting wealthy and growing much faster than the rest of the world, 
it's still exploitation. It's still exploitation. And so we have to not mythologize the, the miracle, the East Asian miracle, and uh, uh, you know, so with sober senses face the uh, real relations, uh, condition, real conditions of life and real relations to our kind, as, as Marx would say, you know. Um, that is that the growth that's been seen in East Asia is highly contra contradictory, although uh, it, is, it is shifting that center periphery uh, balance quite a bit. Um, and global labor arbitrage, you know, was just so salient to me because it highlighted the uh, chief sort of the head of the capitalist hydra, as it were, is like these multinational corporations. That's where, that's where the concentration of the control, you know, just to end with one last thing from a mean on this, which I thought was pretty salient. It's the, you can see that, you know, it's, it's very hard to apply like a classic Marxist analysis and look at the contemporary world and say, yeah, it looks exactly like Marx said. A lot of it is salient, but then where are the factory workers, you know, the traditional blue collar jobs are no longer there and all that. But what I mean highlights with global labor arbitrage is the fact that, you know, multinationals more than ever, they control the, uh, exert control over the production process without, without necessarily owning anything, which is kind of like what Hilferding said also about finance capital. But for example, these multinationals will just, you know, they don't have to hire you. If you're an Indonesian worker, you can still be exploited that you'll never be hired by, by Walmart or any other multinational. But the firm, the guy who you work with, he's, uh, his, the price of his inputs is controlled by Sam Walton. Uh, his access to market is controlled by Sam Walton. And so what he tells you to do on your shift and how long he makes your hours and how low or low, how high he pays you ends up being dictated by uh, multinational capital. And so while it can appear then that sort of like, oh, the corruption of Indonesian leaders and the sort of greed of Indonesian capitalists and, and all these internal problems can be, you know, hoisted up to explain the massive and really devastating impoverishment of the Indonesian people, there is a, you know, there's a hidden abode of global production. There's uh, there is actually something else going on. There's other systemic forces responsible for it. That uh, who's you know you know um, to push them back requires actually like a very different policies than what gets proposed. If you think that you know all the problems of Indonesia are caused by internal internal factors alone, they simply won't solve it. So another corruption, you know, department, another uh, bureaucratic reform is not going to, is not going, it's going to hinder, in fact, the uh, supersession of super exploitation by multinationals. So that's just uh, some of the ways, you know, where I think this idea is, is super, super salient. I think it applies to a lot more places than Indonesia too. I'm wondering before kind of, Tackling the last subject, which I think you've you've alluded to a couple of times about like Indonesia's place in East Asia in particular. I'm curious if you can just clarify the distinction between this and unequal exchange, which you mentioned um, about like this is not solely centered on trade. This is also labor as well. So I'm curious if you can clarify that. Sure, sure. I'd love to. Yeah. Um, 
unequal exchange was the, you know, it's got a curious place in uh, Marxist theory, uh, international theory. So it's probably the only, um, Arrighi Emanuel, the guy who proposed it, proposed a theory of unequal exchange, literally, uh, between uh, capitalist, um, uh, capitalist formations. So he abstracted from um, relations of production and looked purely at exchange. And he said that the reason that the, he said, we have, you know, after the period of decolonization, the way that world trade and the global economy was set up, split the world into oppressor, to use Lenin's phrase, oppressor and oppressed nations. He said that that the, that the core contradiction in the world economy was between those uh, social formations, economies really, that traded, uh, that had high cost of production and those that had low cost of production. He proposed a cost of production theory of, uh, of uh, trade. And he said that where you have low wages in the global south, that is, you have um, uh, embodied in the commodities that get exported from these places uh, under, you know, paid labor. You, you pay your work, Indonesian workers get paid less. They produce commodities that are worth less. The Indonesia as a country trades these uh, low value commodities with um, uh, Western countries and uh, gets, gets ripped off uh, in the trade essentially, because in the West you have certain things, certain factors which raise wages and um, the labor em embodied in, in Western commodities are, are worth more. And when they're, it's through this trade of those commodities with uh, commodities produced in countries like Indonesia, uh, where you get um, a transfer of value from the, as it were, global south to the to, to the global north. This is a, this is more or less what Emmanuel was talking about when he when he talked about unequal exchange. Where Amin comes in, where people like Sawandi come in, where that whole tradition comes in, they then say, um, "But why?" You know, and literally, this was Amin's response to to Emmanuel. He says. You shouldn't take wages as an independent variable. You need to examine why wages are low in uh, developing countries in the first place. He said, uh, Emmanuel had said it's because of historic and moral factors. So basically giving a quasi metaphysical answer, although it is based in Marxist theory of wages, that is correct. But Amin said, this isn't the real reason. The real reason is because of the structure of peripheral social formations. So you have on the one hand, a very productive and technically advanced export uh, a sector and an internal subsistence economy that's very, very unproductive. And so the wage rate, um, in the social formation in the global south, it's pulled down by this internal internal subsistence sector, and the productivity is pushed up 
by this uh, advanced export sector. And therefore you get that magic, uh, very low unit labor cost that makes it very profitable for multinational capital to invest in the global south and to invest only in the uh, export set the resource export sector and to therefore structurally disarticulate the peripheral economy even more and it is this process of the sort of structural adjustment you know i mean came up with that term you know before the 1980s and 1990s came up with it in the 1950s he talked about so-called structural adjustment of peripheral social formation so what Arigi, you know, what Emmanuel kind of takes as um, a phenomenon occurring only through exchange, I mean, roots in deeper sort of restructuring and primitive accumulation type processes, where it's the relations of production are actually getting shifted in the, in the global south. And this suggests that, you know, unlike Emmanuel had argued, the class struggle isn't over, that it's not just a conflict between rich and poor countries, because it's not just an unequal exchange that's going on and explaining why uh, developing countries are poor. It is fundamentally about the control of multinational capital over the productive process and, and um, the class struggle, as it were, has has taken a world stage, but it still has a class character. You know, it's still a struggle against capital by labor, and not a struggle of one set of capitalists against another. One set who's getting screwed, and another set who's who's making money. So, I think that's the key difference. I hope I you know gave an apt enough summary of of it, but that's the core kind of idea. Yeah, thank you. That was actually a very helpful clarification to understanding the two theories in, in contradistinction of each other. Um, I guess this kind of the last subject that I'd like to talk about would be kind of the illusions you've made about the, the region being hot in East Asia, um, with Indonesia in particular. So you, you point out in your article one detail that was fascinating to me, which I was kind of curious about, which was, the, which was China attempting to arm the PKI. Um, and it and that didn't work out. Um, but I'm curious about today, like Indonesia's relationship with with China. I know that there still isn't a a, a communist party of Indonesia uh, to this day. But I wonder about also like Indonesia's role in in both the development of East Asia as a whole and also in kind of the U.S. Um, kind of imperialist position on China, if you want to put it that way, like the the surrounding the the quad alliance that exists now and yeah just kind of curious about what indonesia's place in all of this is yeah sure i mean it's super interesting right just if one looks at the most current events with the war in ukraine on um uh joe the g20 summit is becoming uh, a topic of geopolitical debate because um it's going to be hosted in Bali, Indonesia, and apparently Xi Jinping gave the president of Indonesia a call asking him not to talk about Ukraine and stick to economic issues, not to politicize the G20 meeting and, and, and et cetera. And whereas, you know, in the past, maybe in the 70s and 80s, the U.S. would have had ample means to counter this by 
mainly using Japan to put pressure on Indonesia because it was so dependent on Japanese investment. Today, it's not, it's not Japan who's building the uh, Jakarta Bandung Highway. It's China who's building the Jakarta Bandung Highway. So this changes the picture completely. And Japan is roped in with China and Indonesia and other Southeast Asian nations in the biggest trade deal ever, RCEP, which might not sound like much, but you know, it's just a free trade agreement after all, what's the big deal? But you, you, we should look at this in kind of analogy with Europe, which before it had a unified economy, declared a sovereign state. And RCEP is not to that level, but it's analogous to that in terms of, I mean, it's not creating a, a legal, legalistic and formal union, but it's creating the economic union that's uh, very, very substantial indeed. So the East Asian region and the regionalization of the world is a characteristic of our time. So now Indonesia, Indonesia's relationship with China is a very, very big deal. It's a huge country, Indonesia, and China is massive as well. It recalls, as you sort of allude to, the 50s and 60s, where there might have been a Moscow, Peking, Jakarta alliance. And just to put that in perspective, you know, if you had combined the technology of the Soviet Union with the, you know, manpower at that time, China was not industrialized. So it would have been mainly manpower that they could provide that huge population, very well educated, liberated from the fetters of feudalism, very productive with re natural resources, with the oil wealth, with the timber wealth, with the mineral wealth of. Uh, Indonesia, all under uh, uh, leadership of communist parties, and that's the way it looked, you know, in the 50s, as if that were going to happen, it would have been very, you would have been very hard pressed, you know, to sustain U.S. hegemony, U.S. imperialism in that state. So it's uh, these times kind of echo. Now, the big difference, though, is, of course, there's no communist party, official communist party in Indonesia anymore you instead have political Islam being the main populist force. But interestingly, I, I think in terms of geopolitics, you have a situation where political Islam, the representative of the people, as it were, um, representatives of the state, the Jokowi sort of technocratic uh, factions, um, they're both mainly pro-China. So Jokowi has uh, been relative to Indonesia's capacity to be pro-China because for a long time it was very, very anti-China, pretty pro-China. And the people are, uh, you know, political Islam is very hostile to US imperialism. So they're both, uh, they're both um, somewhat anti-US and somewhat pro-China. So that's an interesting fact about the conjuncture. It seems like the military is the only ones who's really pro-US anymore. Um, and they are pretty pro-US still, but that's sort of the division you still have today in Indonesia. What's, um, what one hopes, I mean, theoretically, what's the sig significance of all this? You know, we have to understand, I think, what the Indonesian social forces today are doing, consciously or not, as a sort of, as a, as a response to, to uneven development, to the unevenness of capital de capitalist development. They are in one way or another, in my view, putting forward proposals for a, a really wholesale recombination of the whole social formation. 
that's to say to get to this, you know, to keep not just to keep development going, but to really make a qualitative leap into an, a higher stage of development, they have got to, um, you know, break apart and recombine the modes of production in the whole archipelago. And this could, this could be so a great opportunity for social forces of the left to come out and, and put forward measures that are, you know, in content socialist, maybe not in name, but it's the same kind of conjuncture as when the PKI was around and uh, you had the social forces pretty much doing that same thing in the 50s and 60s. Geopolitical conjuncture is there, systemic forces are pushing it ever more to fruition and we'll have to see. This is going to react, you know, react back on the rest of the world massively too, because as I, you know, alluded to, if you have that, um, let's say a progressive recombination of the Chinese and Indonesian social formations in line with their integration, uh, you, will, you will one, avoid massive and terrible fragmentation and, and wars and this kind of thing, but you will open up the horizon for a whole generation of people come after us to um, really make a leap towards uh, socialist ideals, disalienation and end to exploitation and uh, substantive progress and different things like this. Yeah. Well, thank you so much um, for taking some time to talk to us about that. I, I guess my last question would just be on any book recommendations or anything people should read to better understand contemporary Indonesian politics or the, the history of Indonesian communism or any of the other subjects you touched on, Samir Amin, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think um, the book uh, Rise of Capital is still, is still a classic. I think if people want to just getting into Indonesia, they should, should start there. Uh, Rise of Capital by Richard Robinson is great. Newer stuff, though, uh, it's, there's a very good book on the Indonesian Revolution, uh, kind of looking at it in the intersection of uh, South, Southeast Asian region as a whole, communism, Islam, and uh, communism, nationalism, and Islam, or communism, Islam, and nationalism, I'm not sure the order of the title, and I also forget the author, but that is, that is a wonderful history, uh, regional history of the Indonesian revolution, actually showing how this sort of, it's pretty idealist, that book, but I, it's a very well-made book, I think came out like a year or two ago. And so it's very recent, well-made and quite critical. So I, I would recommend, yeah, for beginners, Rise of Capital is good. And for more advanced students, maybe the uh, communism, Islam and nationalism, I believe. Thanks so much, Justin. Um, it was great talking to you and I hope to continue um, like an email exchange and continue discussing these things because I, I really appreciated everything you had to say. Um, so I'll upload this, I'll send you the link for it. Um, and then, yeah, I hope to continue discussing. Yeah, let's keep in touch. Thanks a lot, Justin. Definitely. Thanks so much. Have a great Thank rest you. of your day. Bye. Thank you.